Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The government pension offset and the windfall elimination provision have for decades limited Social Security benefits available to certain federal employees, mainly those under the old civil service retirement system, and anyone else who receives a pension from earnings that were not taxed by Social Security. A bill to repeal GPO and WEP had a congressional hearing last month, a field hearing in Louisiana. We get analysis now from John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And John, before we get to the hearing and your feeling about what it was revealing, let's talk about WEP and GPO, often touted as the so-called evil twins here. There's a difference, though. They're not quite the same. Uh, Tell us the difference between WEP and GPO for starters. So WEP reduces the primary Social Security amount for somebody who has a non-covered pension. So for the federal community, that's the CSRS pension. But it also affects police officers, teachers, firefighters in particular states and localities where they had a similar system, CSRS, where they're only paying into their pension system and not paying into Social Security. Because you earn that pension through that non-covered work, but then you go out and you earn your Social Security through private sector work or covered work, you get a hit from your Social Security benefits. And so that's WEP. And so we feel it's unfair for Social Security law to penalize people uh, simply for earning that public sector pension when they earn separately through separate work their Social Security benefits. Right. So if they did not have separate work and only did the public sector job and only have the pension from there, you would say then WEP should be in place because in theory, the pension they receive offsets what they would have received from Social Security. Right. Well, WEP wouldn't even be in place at all because they wouldn't get any Social Security benefits because you have to work and get credit for Social Security benefits as an earned benefit as well. So yeah, it's not in place and it doesn't need to be in place when you don't earn that Social Security benefit through your private sector work. And GPO then, on the other hand, what? So that takes away uh, part of or all of the spousal benefit or the survivor benefit for individuals based on their CSRS or other non-covered pension. It takes two-thirds of that pension amount. So if you had 10000 you know, in benefits, you'd take 6700 and reduce that spousal benefit you get for Social Security or the survivor benefit. I really think the worst situations for GPO are really where that, that CSRS or teacher pension are just big enough to wipe out the entire survivor benefit. So there you have a married couple and they have these two sources of income and maybe the spousal benefit they weren't getting, but then, you know, the one spouse passes away and then they have that entire income wiped away. Whereas when you have Social Security, you at least get the better of the two formulas and you get, you know, it's usually not as hard of a hit, whereas GPO really has some situations where people are really left out to dry. So should the WEP and GPO be eliminated or should they have their formulas adjusted such that they're more equitable? So NARF's primary view is that they should be eliminated and repealed. They were fair, unfair to begin with, and they base basically reductions in Social Security benefits on income earned outside of that system. But we've also supported reform bills. Right now, there's mostly just WEP reform bills. There's not as much on the GPO side for reform versus repeal. But we support a you know, modest reform bills that are in the House on both the Democratic and Republican side that are very similar, uh, but a little bit different. So yeah, we're willing to see some improvement in the status quo, even if our primary goal is that full repeal. So those bills would do what precisely that are out there now? 
So they would provide some relief for current beneficiaries that are affected by WEP. There's a Neal bill. That's Richie Neal, who's the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee. And that would provide $150 per month increase in benefits for those affected by WEP. And it would create this new proportional formula going forward. The Arrington bill, uh, he's also a member of the Ways and Means Committee uh, from Texas that has a lot of state employees affected. That bill would do something very similar. It increase the primary benefit by 100, spousal benefits affected by WEP by 50 for current beneficiaries. And it would also create the same proportional benefit formula going forward. The big difference between the two is that at some point in the future, the Arrington bill only gives you that new formula, whereas the Neal bill protects people and gives them the better of the two. So that creates potential costs on the Neal side for for the Social Security Trust Fund and on the Arrington side, potential benefit cuts. We're speaking with John Hatton. He is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association at this hearing, which took place, as we mentioned, in Louisiana, because a much larger proportion of state employees tend to come under WEP and GPO than at the federal level. What was the sense of the hearing? Well, I think it really provided an opportunity for some members of the Ways and Means Committee, and particularly the Ways and Means Chairman, Jason Smith, to hear directly from people how they're impacted. And I thought the stories that were given by police officers, firefighters, teachers, you know, were very persuasive, I think, to the committee members in the sense that people weren't expecting this. It's caused them a lot of financial heartache, and they felt it was very unfair. And I, and I think those points got driven home to the committee members, and it, it was noteworthy that there is a hearing on this bill. You know, we've had high levels of co-sponsors in the past. Now we have a very high level of 300 co-sponsors in the House on the repeal bill, but the committee has always been the place where the bill has kind of gone to die. And so seeing the committee take some action and going through that process is a good sign for good development for this issue. Where the next step goes, it's unclear. You know, the, the biggest obstacle to repealing these provisions is the cost of it. It costs $146 billion over 10 years. So there need to be some offsets. So that's largely the biggest obstacle. Now, if, is there some reform path or something else? And so having the committee take a closer look, take this a little bit more seriously than they have in the past is, is clearly a good sign for us. Yes, the 146 or $150 billion strain on the Social Security Trust Fund comes when, you know, we already know from an actuarial standpoint, it's out of money already. Yeah, I mean, Social Security is going to go insolvent without any changes in law in the early 2030s, according to the actuaries. So, you know, people are talking about Social Security reforms already right now. My guess is they don't deal with that until 2030 something uh, when they're about to go insolvent. And it's just really a matter of balancing out the revenues, the money out. And, and with the aging population, there's more money going out now than there is coming in. And at some point that will draw down that bank of money that was, was put there or really it's budget authority. But, you know, I would bet on the Congress figuring out eventually but not really any time before that. Well, they can figure it out. They just don't have the guts to do anything about <laughs> it until they have to at the last right. minute. <laughs> yeah, it's not until they're facing beneficiaries with potential benefit cuts that I think they'll actually do something on this, but we will see. And of course, as we speak, we're in the second continuing resolution and no one knows what's going to happen in the middle of next month or early February. I've already heard predictions of a full year CR, but as they discuss all of this, there is the talk of that fiscal commission, which would try to maybe have some kind of a academic or comprehensive approach to the deficits, which keep mounting year after year, adding to the national debt. Your look shows that there could be some real implications for federal employees there. 
Yeah, if they do pass a fiscal commission as part of a new deal on government funding, certainly federal benefits like federal retirement benefits and federal health benefits could be on the table. You know, it'll depend on the details of how they construct that commission. Proposals that we have seen include kind of if a majority of both parties on the commission support a provision or measure, then that would go as part of a package. If they support the package, it would go to the floor for an expedited vote. So it really sets up a a more likely scenario for there to be passage of these provisions, uh, taking it away from kind of the normal congressional process. So I think it depends on what the details of how that commission would be constructed, you know, who's on that commission, kind of what the approach would be from leaders in appointing members to it. But certainly if it is passed as part of a deal, we'll start fighting on those federal benefits issues as part of that commission process. Right. This could give the umbrella protection, you might say, to some members of Congress anyhow, for talking about increased employee contributions to the federal pension program, you know, the FERS program, or even to get rid of the defined pension system and go to the pay-as-you-go fully TSP, what you save is what you're going to have type of system. Yeah, there's a whole host of proposals that come on the table as part of this. I mean, we saw coming out of the last fiscal commission, which was the Simpson-Bowles commission, that didn't get that expedited vote, but it still put a number of proposals on the table. Uh, The first thing that came out of that that actually passed was a pay freeze for federal employees for three years. So, you know, that was a proposal from the commission and actually got enacted, even though the commission didn't get a vote. There was other suggestions like increasing retirement contributions. Now, that actually happened as part of offsets for sequestration. Uh, Now that new hires are paying 4.4% into their retirement instead of 0.8%, which is just an additional tax on top of their earnings. So, you know, other proposals that we see out there, the Republican Study Committee has proposals to get rid of FERS entirely for new hires, to change retirement calculations for current employees, to get rid of cost of living adjustments. So there is a ton of proposals out there that they could find savings from on the backs of uh, federal workers or federal retirees. Yes. So you're worried that this commission, this idea of a fiscal commission could open the Pandora's box, so to speak, to all kinds of lurid proposals. It, it certainly could. And I think, again, I, I we would have a job to do if this commission is put in place about pushing back and talking to the right people. I think the, the federal community would have that job as well to make sure members knew what the impact it would be. Right now, it's kind of about the design of it and how is it set up and what is the purpose of it being set up to do? And is that taking aim in part at federal benefits? We will see. And in the meantime, there is a federal pay raise on the horizon in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it'll just take an executive order from the president, but that's basically already put in place in terms of the alternative pay plan that was sent to Congress uh, in August. So a 4.7 across the board pay increase for the non-locality pay part and a 0.5% increase in the locality pay on average across the board. So that'll be welcome news for federal employees um, in January. And I I think the one benefit of a CR going through the beginning of the year is that Congress isn't going to have an opportunity to kind of mess with this before it goes into place. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's always good news. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so, that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.